Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for joining the podcast today. This is Irtiza Hassan, podcast host. We have with us today on the show, uh, first Siraj Muhammad, acting executive director of Muslim Matters. And our guest today is Brother Umar Usman from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Umar is a corporate professional. He's a certified project manager and leadership trainer. He's also a founding member of Kalam Institute and has served in different leadership capacities with several organizations, local and national. He's a khatib in his local community, and he teaches regularly around the country on topics of leadership, social media, and conducts public speaking training and events. He's also the author of a book called The Fiqh of Social Media. Omar and Siraj, welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Irtizan Omar, glad to be here. Thanks, Siraj. Omar, wanted to uh, get right into, before we get right into the podcast, I actually wanted to ask you, you know, uh, I know Dallas-Fort Worth, just when you look at the U.S. and North America, it's really a kind of considered to be one of the really good Muslim communities and uh, attracting a lot of people. I mean, you, me, and Siraj talk about this. We have friends from California, from New Jersey, from D.C., from kind of all over that seem in the last five, ten years they've relocated to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. I want to ask you, as someone who actually lives there, a born and raised local boy, if you could say one thing that you really enjoy about being in Dallas-Fort Worth area as a Muslim, what's what's one thing that you uh, really uh, enjoy? And maybe one thing where, you know, the grass is greener and, and not everything might be as great as it seems. You know, it's funny. I think it's maybe the same answer to both questions, and that is... Uh, kind of the access to a lot of really good imams and scholars in the area. Uh, so definitely something I appreciate. And I think a lot of communities maybe don't have, you know, that kind of abundance of local imams of and, you know, things like that. But I think on the flip side, uh, you know, there's an idea of taking things for granted. And so even though we have like very amazing, talented, high caliber, you know, imams and scholars, a lot of times, you know, their classes might not be that well attended or their weekly programs may not be that well attended. And so uh, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Right? You have this awesome resource, but then you also have to take advantage of it. You know, it brings an interesting question to my mind, actually. So we always hear that one of the reasons why people, anyone, adults, children, whoever, turn to social media for specifically Islamic education is because there is a lack of resources. Do you find in a community with so much abundance that there is a difference uh, within the community in terms of how it interacts with the internet and internet resources, even on social media or YouTube or wherever, versus what you find in Dallas? Yeah, so I, this is something that I think can actually go like a number of very interesting directions, right? So if I would say, if I talk about Dallas specifically, like in terms of local resources, I think one thing that you can't ignore is geography. And so, you know, people tend to uh, gravitate toward whatever their local mashid is. It's going to be very difficult to, like, drive 
30 or 40 minutes to another masjid to attend like a weekly halakha, for example. And so in that case, like it might be easier to attend something online, even with just the logistics of it attending locally. But in terms of online and resources, I think there's another aspect to it, which is this is like one is there's very clearly situations where people live in underserved communities or they don't have like they just don't have any mom or they don't have any kind of scholar that's locally accessible to them. In that case, it makes a lot of sense to attend a class. But I think there's also a subset where you have people that do have local scholars that are, you know, well-studied, reputable, have a lot to offer the community, but because they're not necessarily popular online or they haven't attained that celebrity status, and I think this is one of the big downfalls of social media and a little bit of the online stuff, is you might undersell that resource because they're not popular. And so it's not, sometimes it's not a lack of resource, it's a lack of maybe a popular resource or the same type of resource that everyone else is going to. So there's there's some nuance there, but I think there's a couple of different ways that, that can go. Right. So let's do let's do this. Absolutely. Good to know uh, the background. And from Dallas, I, I want to, before we get into the questions, um, and it's great to have both of you here as you're both fathers, you're both husbands. And the topic today of today's a podcast is essentially about how to deal with social media and the internet usage, which essentially touches all of us. I mean, you could be a public school kid, you could be private school, Islamic school, homeschool, and not just children, uh, husbands and wives, parents. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, um, who, who are who are uh, dealing with a tremendous amount of time and, and energy, whether good or bad energy, spent on social media and the internet. So we'll get into that, and uh, it would be great to hear both of your perspectives. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, Omer, something really neat uh, that I know about you is that in 2018, you authored a book called The Fic of Social Media. And I, I want to ask you what uh, prompted you, what got you to write that. But before asking you that, I will tell you that even here in Houston, where I live, I'm in Houston, Texas, and Siraj, our um, acting uh, executive director of Muslim Matters, is based in Victoria, Canada. So kind of have an international show here. It is, um, we have people who I know from Sunday school, Islamic Sunday schools, and uh, even one of the brother who runs a, a Fajr club for youth and and families, they have, uh, have read the book, shared the book. Uh, they cite the book when they're talking to others about social media and dealing with internet usage and and just considering how they use it. So I wanted to ask you before we get into the actual questions of today's show, what what pushed you to this? What what made you think, hey, this is a, a work that really needs to be written? So I'll give you a little bit of a longer answer because I think it's maybe good context, especially uh, on the Muslim Matters platform, right? So, you know, alhamdulillah, in 07, uh, I was fortunate to be part of the team that helped start Muslim Matters. And that was kind of, you know, an exposure to Dawah online, right? You know, at that time, it was still, I would say relatively newer, right? It was still being developed. We didn't have all these huge YouTube, you know, followings and uh, shakes with their online platforms and all of that. It was still very much just like kind of blog driven. But what was interesting was just myself noticing as someone who was an IT professional and doing some volunteer work on the side, just seeing, you know, how things played out 
online. We post an article on Muslim Matters, how people respond to it, how people talk about it versus discussions that you might have, you know, at your local measure after Isha. And so, there, you know, I would say a small seed was planted in the sense of like, oh, this is different. I don't know why it's different or why people are acting differently, but something is, you know, something's a little bit, uh, there's some incongruence somewhere. And I would say over time, I was kind of developed that point of view. And there was a couple of articles early on uh, in MM, I want to say probably in about the 10-ish years ago range, which is, man, it's so, you know, it feels like it was much more recent. But, you know, there's one article uh, that I wrote called The Muslim Parents Guide to Reddit. And that one was an interesting one because it got posted to uh, like an atheism subreddit and got a ton of comments and traction uh, there. And then there was a video that we posted on MM that ended up going, you know, I don't like saying viral, but it went like Muslim viral, right? Like it went viral within, you know, our small niche online Muslim community. But the shame grenade thing of how a lot of online discourse gets hijacked. And so you know, getting validation from, you know, some pieces like that, I was like, okay, there's something more here. And finally, I was like, let me let me see if I can just start a whole project around just social media, and how we interact with it and having, you know, having a faith perspective. And I think one of the things that drove me was, you know, I remember like when Facebook first, first really got popular. And we would hear talks at the masjid where people were like, oh, you know, Facebook is haram. Facebook is like, and they didn't really know anything about it. They didn't know anything about the platform. They didn't know how people were interacting with the platform, but they were just like, oh, it's haram. And I was thinking in my head, like, this is really unproductive discourse because if, if your goal is to get people not to use that platform because there's so much bad on it, this is not going to accomplish that. And regardless of whether you call it haram or not, like clearly these platforms are picking up a lot of steam. And so in my head, just in terms of pure pragmatism, it's like you have to have a different approach. Uh, so fast forward in about 2014, I started like the Fickle Social Media website and did a 40 Hadith collection on social media that was just very basic. It was meant to be like Sunday school level, you know, very basic teachings of Islam, but just connecting the dots to how they could be implemented online. And alhamdulillah, that got a lot of traction. I got a lot of really positive feedback. And so I started writing more articles, got, ended up getting invitations from Masaji to like come and speak and present on it, which was, it was not an intent. My intent was just to write. Um, but, you know, I started getting invitations, word of mouth spread. And like over the course of five years, probably visited, you know, a few dozen communities, alhamdulillah, across the US. And it was the culmination of all those things, right? Like my experiences with, you know, being being a volunteer for Dawah efforts online, uh, kind of observing and pointing out some of these things, getting that feedback, presenting and, you know, hearing comments from people and what's resonating with them and their experiences and all of that. And that all culminated uh, into finally getting the book together, Alhamdulillah, in 2020. You know, it's something that I've been planning on doing since the onset and it's never got around to writing the book. It took essentially a pandemic for me to sit down and complete it but alhamdulillah by the end of i believe 2020 uh it was published and finally released omar i'd be really interested to understand or learn about some of those anecdotes that drove the writing of the book what are some of the stories that you uh picked up from different communities when you were visiting so a lot of different ones i would say one was 
I went into it, right? Like the more that I researched the topic, the more that I was personally convinced that social media is something that no one should be on, period. Like in my mind, like the more that I researched it, the more that I couldn't draw any other conclusion. But I didn't think that that was going to be palatable. And what I found when I started kind of presenting on it was so many people coming up and saying like, yeah, I'm completely off of it. Or like, you know, I've deactivated accounts. And I didn't I didn't realize just how how much people actually liked and that message resonated and that they were trying to do that. That's maybe a, a positive one. I would say another one, and this is, you know, perhaps more negative, and this one that I shared with Earth is a, you know, prior to the recording. And this is the one that was maybe a little bit surprising for me just because it was so common in multiple different communities. And that was the feedback that it wasn't just social media, but it was like the group chats and WhatsApp. Uh, so it wasn't that people were spending time on Facebook, but it was like it was a very specific complaint that the dad comes home from work and he's really tired. And I heard this from, you know, women talking about their husbands. And this was, you know, people that had been married for like two or three years and people that had been married like 30 plus years. I heard this from... Uh, I even heard this from kids in MSAs, like 19, 20 years old, saying like, I'm really struggling because I don't really use my, you know, I don't really use social media that much, but my dad is absent at home, right? Like the dad comes home from work. He's really tired. He wants to veg out. And so he sits on the couch, essentially just forwarding WhatsApp videos to his friends all night and not giving any time to the family. And I thought that this was like a one-off kind of thing, but unfortunately it was something that I kept hearing over and over and over again, uh, like multiple places. So no, that's a that's a really good point. In fact, you start, you know, as we're getting into the questions, you starting with this uh, issue, which is more about fathers or, or elders. And I think on the, for this podcast, because we have you, we have you and 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 Siraj, and just getting these points of view, we want to be fair when we're talking about social media and internet usage on. You know, there's going to be some pros and positives and, and needs where you where you need to use it possibly. And then there there are some of those and we, we may have blinders to this, but where there are risks and concerns and there can be even maybe we can call it an, you know, addiction or excessive use. So I, I want to start with a question actually for, for both of you guys on the flip side, and we will definitely come back to talking about uh, fathers and parents and, and them using it. Let, let's start with children. We're all, we're all fathers here. I, I, I know that you know, all of us have kids that, that range in their ages. And I want to ask you, Omer and, and Siraj, let's start with young children, 10 and under, uh, because quite frankly, you see children having gadgets younger and younger, whether it's their own iPad, their own iPhone. And, and I know parents have different reasons where they decide to give such gadgets to the kids. I'm not here to, uh, to debate that or, or question that. But inevitably, when these kids have their own gadgets, they're going to probably have access to some type of social media, unless they're just on there for homework and game, and maybe they play games or something. They're going to have access to something. Um, how do you approach, how do you guys recommend approaching internet use or, or gadget use or social media? Firstly, when we're talking about the under 10, pre-middle school, we're not talking about high school. We're just talking about really small children because, again, Data shows more and more younger kids are now having their own gadgets, and sometimes they're spending up to 10, 15 hours a week and more 
on on these gadgets. So I want to start with the young kids. I think there's really two questions embedded in there. One is social media use. But when we're talking about the devices, we're also talking about screen use. And there are recommendations around that. So if we look at, for example, and I'm in Canada, so the Canadian uh, Pediatric Association, they have very strict guidelines just around screen use alone, which would say like, you know, for kids who are like five and under, it should be like no more than one hour per day. That's just in terms of like how much time they're on the screen. That's without, without even thinking about the content. And then you get to ages five and above. And, and then they, and then they have guidelines for teenagers and then they say, okay, well, maybe one hour on the school nights and then two hours should be the maximum. If you want to keep it healthy for your kids on the weekdays now or week, uh, on uh, weekends rather. But in reality, I don't think a lot of parents are following that. Uh, I don't think a lot of parents are even aware of that. So it becomes a balancing act with your kids because they are on social media, as you mentioned, they're chatting with friends. It's not simply about consuming content. There's a lot of peer pressure in the classrooms if you're going to public school. And I would say, I would argue maybe even Islamic school as well, to be on the platform, to look at the latest things. So there there has to be a discussion with the kids where you tell them, look, this is not healthy for you. And they may not understand it. And you're going to have to limit it with them. So there's various ways we do it in my house. We have uh, internet controls on the devices themselves. Um, we have Wi-Fi controls on, you know, our um, router. And then we even have uh, desktop controls on all the specific screen devices like iPads and all the desktop computers, the uh, Macs. So there's a, a variety of ways to do it. I would say that we should look at the guidelines given to us by the medical, uh, like the pediatric medical, medical fields in our um in our particular country and, and try to at least at a minimum follow that because there's plenty of research discussing, you know, how addictive it can be, um, how damaged it can be, how damaged it can be to their self-esteem, especially the girls. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult topic to have with your kids um, or a very difficult discussion to have with your kids. But I think ultimately as parents, we do have to lock down a bit and say, yeah, th- this is, this is something that's not good for you if you do it in excess. Now, Siraj, one qu- a follow-up to that. When you said certain devices or you put internet controls, are you talking about just with the settings of the device or or some of those external uh, software and tools like you have like NetNanny and stuff like that? Um, I was just wondering for listeners who might be wondering the same thing, what what are some ways that you that you put some locks or some preventions on it? Sure. So there's a number of ways to do it. I mean, there are for example, with Google, right, they, they have different ways that they allow you to monitor your kids and see what their activity is. But in Canada, at least, I'm not sure about in the U.S., but in Canada, they have rules that say that, look, once your kid is 13, they're considered old enough to opt out of this and not have parental supervision. So you have to negotiate that with your kids because there will be a point where they may turn it off. And then if they turn it off, it'll show a notification on your device and you can turn it back on. That's one. Um, Norton, uh, Norton Antivirus has a whole um, package for families. So you can install their, their software on the Windows machines, on Macs, on phones, pretty much anything, any type of screen. And you can regulate the hours for when those devices are turned on and off. You can assign like specific devices to specific kids or specific people in the home. You can completely turn on and turn off anything whenever you want. So the minute it comes on, um, 
if it's not authorized, it can be completely blocked. Now, the third level is from your Wi-Fi router. You should be able to do it. It used to be something where you had to be like, you know, you had to be some type of network engineer or somebody like really well acquainted with IT. But now they've set it up, at least in Canada, we have uh, Shaw Mobile or um, Shaw Internet, and they give you a very user-friendly, parent-friendly control where you can assign devices to your kids and say, okay, you can't control that the device is on, the kids are just playing with things locally. But what you can do is you can shut off the Wi-Fi for that device and it won't be able to communicate with the outside world. So parents can control that, they can control the hours the device is on, they can control the intervals it's up um, and they can shut it down whenever they want. So there's different ways to do it. It's just a matter of what level of the stack that you wanna get to within the device to turn it off. And there are increasingly more and more user-friendly, parent-friendly, layperson-friendly ways to do it as opposed to like, you know, having to be like a, a techie to get it done. Okay, and one thing you said there, I'd like to, um... Maybe let Omer address this one or bring this to Omer. You said you could customize certain things uh, based on permissions or allowances for, for the different kids or different users in the family. So this goes to, and I know all three of us are the dads. We're fathers of, uh, of a range of age of children. For example, we, I, I believe all three of us have teenagers. So Omer, let me ask you, and I think, I think Siraj really um, said some eye-opening stuff, like the one hour of screen time a day. Uh, and I believe Siraj is referring to total screen time. That could be TV or there could be other gadgets. How would you deal with a teenager? And and where I'm going with this is, I know our faith is really important to us three and probably most of our listeners, the brothers and sisters who listen to the show, or even, even our non-Muslim guests who listen to the show. Um, you know, you, we, we can't always control and, and certainly cannot deal with teenage children the same way we do with young children. And I know most of us, alhamdulillah, we would like to think, obviously, we have good children. It's not about trusting them or not trusting them, but it's about the realities of, of what's out there on the on the internet, on social media, on the WhatsApps, or I, I think younger folks use Discord and some of these other uh, things out there. Omar, how would you deal with a little, like, slightly older kid, someone, teenager, 13 to 18, et cetera? How, as the father, how would you, would it be the same? Would, would there be some different things you do? I think Siraj mentioned a lot of good points. I want to add one thing uh, to it. And I think this, or this is your point, this probably applies more to, let's say, the teenagers and stuff. If we if we remove social media from this equation, right? Let, let's talk about like before smartphones, like when we were teenagers, you know, uh, a younger kid that's like seven or eight or nine or 10 wants to go play at a friend's house what level of involvement do the parents have in that decision-making in that vetting process? You know, what are the guardrails they're putting around it that, you know, he wants to go to your seven-year-old son wants to go to a birthday party at the bowling alley for a friend. What does that look like? Oftentimes the parents are chaperoning the kid or they're making sure that another family that we trust is going to kind of be there watching. But we, you know, we have all these guardrails in place. By the time the kid is like 15, 14, 15, 16, 17, they have access to circumvent the parents. And so even if it's like a practicing Muslim family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it doesn't take a lot for the kid to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to Ahmed's house for the night. And then 
he ends up at the club or he ends up doing something else because he's hiding that behavior from his parents because he doesn't feel, you know, the parents have essentially banned it, uh, but he wants to do it anyway. To me, social media is almost a parallel or an analogy of the same type of thing. And what I'm what I'm getting at essentially is this, is that, you know, the, the technical solutions and guardrails, I think they go a long way when the kids are younger. But as the kids get older, there's a lot of ways around, you know, all those technical safeguards. And, you know, kind of when there's a will, there's a way they will find a way to get around it, right? One of the experiences that that I've had with, you know, teaching this course in particular, was parents trying to essentially ban their kids from Snapchat, and the kids still finding other ways of getting around it, whether that's, you know, finding some other innocuous social media that's not on everyone's radar, but still has a messaging or DM function and using that, or, you know, downloading the app and deleting it and, you know, reinstalling it over and over. You know, there's always a way around what's going on. And I, I kind of give that long-winded answer to say that in the end, what it's going to boil down to is as a parent, you're not going to be able to keep up with each and every technology or social media platform or messaging platform or communication method uh, that the kids have or the content that they're going to consume. And no matter what safeguards you put around it, they might find another way around it. And so it's almost more important. And this is the part that like, as a parent, it hurts because it's not really like the greatest answer or like the, you know, it's not a quick fix answer. But it really comes down to cultivating a strong relationship with your kids to the point where, you know, they don't feel the need to hide things or you've got enough relationship with them where, where you explain to them why you're telling them that they can't go on that thing that they actually understand and listen. And that's definitely, you know, easier said than done. No, that's uh, that's that's very fair. I I, I want to ask you guys right around the same topic, going into, and we're not just talking about children or teenagers here. It could be elders as well. There is another reality that, um, you know, obviously, we'll have sons and daughters, or there could be husbands and wives, brothers and sisters using social media and internet. And I want to ask you guys: Is there a difference, or is there something you look for again as fathers? when it could come to your daughter's usage of social media and the internet. And here's why I'm asking. And uh, for the listeners, none of us are experts in um, uh, psychology or counseling, but so we may share things that we know, but we're not, we're not speaking, you know, prescriptively. We, we like to stay in our own lane, but having said that guys, we know that there's studies that say that um, over overuse of social media and uh, some, especially some of the apps out there now, whether it's Instagram or others, they, they lead to self-esteem issues, even uh, ironically loneliness. Some people experience loneliness when they're, uh, you know, overuse of these apps and, and some some teenagers and even adults have anxiety and depression. And this is not, you know, me saying this, this is experts have, have written about this. I wanted to ask, given what we know about this, and Siraj, maybe maybe we start with you on this because uh, I I think you had said that you've referred to some of the guidelines and stuff. As Muslims, should we uh, should we have a different uh, purview when it comes to our our daughters? Like, is there something different we look at when it comes to our because we're trying to protect them and keep them away from these sort of depression and self esteem issues? Or, and don't get me wrong, I realize that there's dangers to both. 
But is there something different that you would look at in a daughter using uh, the internet or social media versus uh, your son? I wouldn't differentiate in terms of the time, but I would certainly differentiate in terms of what we understand is impacting them. And so the conversations might be different and the focus might be different, but we still wouldn't want to keep our eyes off of other types of behavior. So depression is one. Bullying is another. Um, Sometimes the depression is because you didn't get the validation from people clicking likes on something you posted, whether it was a text you put out or a photo. Uh, other times it's just feeling left out of a group, like people in a group chat get together, they make a plan and they don't include you and they're, they're your friends and you feel left out. So there's a lot of different ways that goes both for girls and for guys. I think what we've seen with guys is that they spend a lot more time when we're talking about screens on video games. But when I've seen, when I see brothers, at least on social media, I tend to see them in a more combative argumentative stance over different issues whether they're younger guys or older guys, and they, they have the things they get into. I would be concerned for a couple of things. One, I'm concerned about their physical health and how they're developing or not developing. And unfortunately, you know, there have this has been a, grow, a learning curve for me because I grew up with, let's say, AOL and some of the older uh, software platforms way back in the day. But I like like all of you, I came from a background where we still went out, we still played, we still did sports, we did a, a variety of things beyond just our screens. We're in a stage now where we have these devices with us everywhere. And I think all of us know by now that whether it's social media or it's the online games that we have or anything else that we see on a screen, they're designed to addict us the same way drugs are. The dopamine hits that are continuously occurring because of the way they were designed, keep all of us hooked and they keep us hooked in a way that's unhealthy for us, both for our mental health and our physical health and just our intellectual development and ultimately also our spiritual development. So when I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to deal with this? I'm thinking about all these um, factors, but I'm also thinking about how it's going to affect both boys and girls this way. So I would rather see, Again, like I said, the limited time as much as we can. And to Omer's point, you know, developing that relationship with the kids such that we can have these conversations and encourage them to better behavior. So with my kids right now, we've the older kids, unfortunately, we let them have more screen time because we were still learning all this. You know, this is all happening over the past decade. And as we're reading more and learning more, we're scaling back a lot and we're trying to encourage them to go out and find other activities, whether it's, you know, arts and crafts, or it's, you know, some type of skill that they can develop, like, you know, martial arts. That's where we are right now with both the boys and the girls. Okay. Omer, same question for you, if you, because I know also you're the father of daughters and sons. Any difference in how you would advise or caution or, or treat them, uh, your son and your daughter, when it comes to internet use or social media? I would say no. I think uh, we've tried to be fairly consistent in the sense of like, you know, if we're saying don't be on social media, it's equally applying to, you know, like my oldest two, uh, my oldest is a boy, and the second one is a girl. They're very close in age. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But the, the policies are uniform, right? What's going for one is going for the other. Um, I, I think there's like some general guidelines that said like, okay, hey, this is bad for your mental health is an example now, how that impacts each one differently 
it might come down in the case of as a parent, it might be different with your kids. Like, you know, your kids, you know, what impacts them. I think that's one thing, right? You know, you might know if you need to treat them differently or talk to them differently about it while still maintaining kind of fairness and policy. Now, with that said, I would say in terms of kind of like the general societal trending, right? If, if we can be, you know, so bold as to make just gener- sweeping generalizations in a sense. Uh, but I think like Leonard Sachs, uh, he's got a couple of books on adolescent boys and adolescent girls that are, you know, pretty well done and speak to the different types of impact that social media has, you know, on boys or on girls in particular, you know, especially with things like Suraj mentioned, especially with things like uh, self-esteem or depression, like it might impact them the same way. And, you know, it's tough because we don't, we don't want to like be stereotypical, but at the same time, you can't ignore that, like things do impact different types of people, different ways. But I think Leonard Sachs is a good resource in talking about how it impacts them. And so I think for me, it, it drives the conversation of just understanding, like, as a parent, who your kid is, what kind of things are going to impact them or affect them and speak to them in that way. Uh, but I think in terms of, like, as a parent with the boys and girls, still being fair in the actual policy and implementation of it, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, guys, with this, I want to actually move into another topic where we'll have a few items to address. And it's about social media and, and spirituality, or specifically social media and our deen, especially us as Muslims. And I'll tell you, I, I, I have a lot of questions about this for both of you and, and hopefully some discussion. I will tell you that some of the, the benefit I get, uh, whether it's daily reminders or, um, and you know, we all have personalities and scholars or, or videos we follow. A, a lot of those I, I get from social media. I have certain people I follow. So when you know, they release something new or they have a khatra or they have a lecture. Uh, you know, I'll get it from Facebook or I'll get it from, um, you know, somewhere else. But then I'll have other times where, uh, and, and, and I know, and this is not meant to be a judgmental comment, and I want our listeners to know that. But, uh, you know, when you, if you are a Muslim in a, in a traditional or practicing context, I have uh, p- families or people I know maybe from the masjid. But when you're on social media, you may have friends who, you know, they're posting pictures of their their family members without hijab or they're, po- or, you know, in, in a very kind of, you know, uh, they're kind of beautified and they're they're at some sort of public event. And and so you see things sometimes where you're like, you know, I would not have seen that if, if I wasn't on, on social media or and there obviously can be other types of images or, or things. So I wanted to ask you guys, firstly, a broad question and then we can get into some specifics. What are some of the impacts on social media? And again, I know there's going to be some pros and cons, and we'll go into those. But generally, what is what can be some of the impact of social media on our deen or on our spirituality? And and I'm as a follow up to that, I'll say that we've noticed more and more in recent years where in Ramadan, even people who use social media, they go on social media fasts, they go on social media breaks. They say we're not going to use it in Ramadan. I'm trying to tie that into uh, how do you guys feel about that? Like again, as a general comment social media's impact on our deen, on our spirituality. And Siraj, you could start, but I want to hear from both of you on this one. I'll answer the Ramadan part quickly. Anything, any excuse that people use to cut down their usage, I think is a good positive step, period. Like full stop. Um, In terms of like just the actual spirituality stuff, I think it's, 
it's a mixed bag. And I think the main word that I would highlight is this intentionality. Like, what is your, what are you trying to get out of it? And if you don't have a goal, it can, you know, the again, the default of social media is going to be that it's made to addict and waste time, right? Well, I'll give you an example. Someone follows a bunch of Islamic scholars on Twitter. Now, what happens is that this person, you know, probably takes out their phone and checks Twitter, let's say, between 10 and 25 times a day. Between 5 and 25 times a day, they check Twitter. Now, every time they check Twitter, they see Mufti so-and-so has this quote about patience. Oh, Sheikh so-and-so posted this thing about, you know, seeking knowledge. And, oh, Imam so-and-so put this thing about repentance. And what happens is that over the course of a, a full, you know, day where you've been checking your phone over and over and over again, and between Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and blah, 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 you've probably been inundated with like a few dozen Islamic reminders, you know, little infographics, I mean, not info, but little, you know, those quote pictures or, you know, little one liners or, uh, you know, a 10 second reminder thing off of like an Instagram story or a TikTok or something. But, ba- but basically over the course of a day, you get bombarded with dozens and dozens of these, you know, little Islamic messages. And it can feel like, wow, I've really, I'm really spiritual. I've really accomplished a lot. I'm really coming closer to my deen. But you really stop and ask, like, what was the actual level of impact of consuming all those messages? And I would say that if we're being really critical, you probably didn't learn much. You read a bunch of motivational quotes that, you know, seem to have value in that fleeting moment, but they're not sticking with you past that 10 seconds. And what it can do is it can create this illusion for your or delusion for yourself that, you know, I'm really studying all the time. I'm being religious all the time. And you're just consuming little like tidbits. You're not really getting anything of substance. And I think that's like a really like that's a trap that I think a lot of people fall into is that when you're not intentional with your usage, it can feel like you're doing a lot more than you are. And so that's where I would say like really caution people to be careful about like, what is it that you're actually doing? Why are you doing it? And what purpose is it serving? Now, on the on the other hand, and I think Ramadan is, a, a, again, a good example. If you live in a community where, you know, you don't have uh, an imam or something like that, right? You've just got a ragtag group of, you know, people leading Tarawih or whatever. And now you find like, oh, you know, my favorite sheikh is doing this 30-day series in Ramadan where every night, you know, they're posting a 30-minute video on the tafsir of the Quran. So I'm going to follow that series because I don't have anything going on in my masjid. I think that's a really awesome use of, you know, social media as a resource and a way of increasing your spirituality and staying connected. But but again, I think for me, that comes back to having some level of intentionality with it. Uh, And it, you know, again, if you're, if you're able to have discipline, if you're able to have goals with what you want to do, you know, you can find very beneficial classes, you can find a lot of good material to go through. But on the flip side, right, the kind of what, the downside that comes with all of that stuff being there is what a lot of people end up doing is you just end up accumulating like, oh, here's my list of all these awesome articles I got to read. Here's a list of all these awesome, you know, Islamic 
classes on video that I want to go through on YouTube. Oh, here's the list of all these podcasts I want to listen to, like this whole tafsir of the Quran or, you know, the whole seer of the Prophet I've, You start accumulating bookmarks to all this stuff, but not actually going through it. And that also can feel like I accomplished a lot because I found all this cool stuff that I'm going to get through someday, but then you don't, right? So there, there's a lot that can happen. It can go a lot of different ways, like a lot of these things, but it, it just really requires, and I think this is maybe like kind of the theme for all the social media stuff in general, is that discipline and intentionality with it. Oh, uh, appreciate that. Suraj, same, same topic if you wanted to expand on, on this one. Yeah, I'm, I have the same, a very similar response to Omar, actually. It can be a mixed bag. Um, the way I think about it, for myself at least, is the, is the material that I'm consuming, is it increasing my worship or is it decreasing it at the end of the day? So if I'm sitting on social media and I'm more consumed with the fights of social media and the drama of social media, and it's keeping me away from increasing in my worship or it's, you know, it's it's tweaking out my attention span and that does happen. And I've, I've had it happen a few times. Um, what should I be doing right now? So if that question comes back in the negative, I know I've spent way too much time. And and I say that as somebody who is felt completely targeted by Omar's remark about <laughs> going 25 times on Twitter and Facebook, because I'm one of those people who has done that and sometimes still does. But I, I use this audit as a benchmark and if I see that I'm getting lazy in worship, then I know that something is wrong. And this is probably one of the first places I need to look. I do think it's interesting that there is a movement now amongst non-Muslims uh, to do what are called dopamine fasts. So amongst the things that they fast are social media, music, pornography. Um, and there's a few other things that have been documented as spiking dopamine really fast. And then when a person gets addicted to it, they need increasing amounts of it. So, you know, Muslims who are taking that time off social media and fasting, I mean, it's not just the food, the drink and so on that's being fasted from. It's also all the other, I would say, addictive behaviors that come with social media. So that is interesting. I also like to just differentiate a little bit between the, I would say, probably in our in our sort of bubble where we have like the the more religious type of Muslims, the orthodox type. And then there's the general practicing group. And then there's like the mainstream I find that social media for people who are already very involved and have a good base of knowledge and understanding for them to be on social media constantly, it might not be beneficial. Like Omar said, there needs to be some intentionality. And instead of just randomly scrolling and getting hit by this and that, you won't grow too much. But if you're somebody who has absolutely no background or very little background or you don't spend a lot of time, then I look at it almost the way we did our Dawah tables back in the day, where if somebody happens to find you and find your pamphlets or find your table, it can be beneficial and it can be a starting off point. So I think when you look at, for example, and I'll, I'll pick a name like a Mufti Mink, for example, much of his, uh, many of his, um, I would say his messages, they go out to the mainstream audience. So with that said, I think it's very beneficial for him to post and for Muslims who are already on social media and not necessarily consuming it for religious reasons to continue to get it for that. But for many of us who are, I would say, already have like a good grasp, it may be a waste of time. It just depends on the situation. Hey, so I'll add one thing, right? So we're, we're out of the theoretical. So we're out of the theoretical and in the practical. Uh, I've unfollowed or muted probably most, I don't want to say most, a lot of 
kind of the religious content that I follow. Um, just because what I kept finding was that like, I might've followed someone because I thought like, oh, I'm going to get benefit from the stuff that this person's posting. And it either, <coughs> either led me in that path of like, where, you know, I think I'm accomplishing more than I was or B just because of that drama cycle where like they're posting things in the religious realm, but it's to Saraj's point, it's not something that's of benefit. So it's religious topics, but it's not things that I really care about or arguments that I care to partake in. And so for, again, you know, for me, right, me, myself, and I, and not my recommendation for other people necessarily, but what has worked for me is unfollowing a lot of the Islamic or muting a lot of the Islamic content on social, using my social media really more as entertainment. Like I, I get more NBA and basketball memes in my Twitter account than I do Islamic content. But I do have like one or two classes that I'm keen to follow that I'll try to make it a point to go and like sit through those videos or take notes or follow along and consume that content that way. But I found for me like getting those hits off social was more of a net negative than a positive. No, I, I totally agree with both of you and really good points. And I, you know, not, not to push specific personalities, but, you know, as Siraj was saying about, about Mufti Mank, I, I, I would agree with Omar that maybe not all the content is beneficial or worth uh, always following. And sometimes it gets into the same uh, type of argumentation or, or let's say controversies, but then you'll have the occasional like, uh, and I know all of us follow his, some of his posts, uh, Dr. Hatem Al-Hajj, which Sometimes his posts are literally like a class because they're just full of so many uh, wisdoms. And and he'll even preface some of his posts by saying, hey, this is a little more advanced topic. If you're not rooted in the fundamentals, maybe skip this one. And other times it'll be uh, something that, that that builds you from the ground up. So I, I, I think there there are definitely people putting good content out there that should be followed. But to Omer's point, uh, there, there's also that healthy balance. You know, Ertz, I just wanted to mention one thing about about Dr. Hotham's content. You know, his his content is like a very interesting case study because if I were to look at his content and just just putting him aside for a second and looking at what he's discussing, I would say he's discussing something that maybe, you know, 10, 20 years ago we were still debating on the internet, but amongst a smaller group of people. And it was probably very toxic for everyone involved. I mean, it was helpful in one way. People maybe learned quite a bit, but then it was very partisan and, and, and quite horrible actually. And many people stepped away from that. Some people were hurt by that. But when you look at the way Dr. Hatem is discussing this issue, he's discussing it in such a beautiful way. His manners are very good. The way he engages with people who oppose him and who he's discussing is just top notch. And it's, he exemplifies how we should be having the conversation. So even though, like I would say, I probably am not here to get into that discussion at a very deep level. Sometimes you have personalities like him who you just benefit, as, as we say in the past, even the were scholars, you benefit from their manners. He's the type that I would want to just read the content, even though I'll be honest, like you said, it's, it's, it can be over our heads sometimes. It could be a class in and of itself, which requires a lot of background. But just watching the way he interacts was a lesson in and of itself. I just wanted to highlight that. Now, guys, one point that I, I think this one we probably don't have to spend as much time on, we'll all probably agree, that if you are on social media or are on the internet, uh, one of the positives definitely is bringing awareness to good news and causes. You know, whether that's really a grassroots local issue like, 
you know, a brother, unfortunately, maybe a father passes away and you got to quickly raise money for the, the, the wife and children or the family or, or there's an illness or, or a cause overseas, you know, flood somewhere, earthquake somewhere. And, you know, we see a lot of really good, I think, in the last 10, 15 years, crowdfunding and, and different type of uh, services that, that Muslims have taken a big part in. And, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, our community is very generous. So I know that's there. But I, I wanted to actually ask you guys and to wear a different hat for a second, because all of us are passionate about some stuff, especially stuff we believe in. But then Umar's comment recently that, you know, Umar sometimes approaches social media as more of a for entertainment or, or, or more re- relaxation, you know, catching up on NBA scores or videos, which I do as well. I, I, I know, you know, we all love NBA or, or following sports and whether it's soccer or cricket. Let me ask you guys one thing. If you believe strongly in something and you see misinformation on social media or on the internet, or uh, you see someone take a problematic take, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about a stranger, but someone who would be quote unquote in your circle of influence. And this doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the modern trending topic, like, you know, what you might think about someone like Andrew Tate. Uh, this could be an annual issue uh, that recur every year, uh, whether it's, you know, who should you follow on the moon sighting or what do you do about Maulid, which of course our scholars have addressed for so long. But what do you guys do in your purview when it's when it's right in front of you and you sometimes see a take that uh, it's trending and again, you disagree with it? Do you, do, you, do you always feel that you should use social media to bring your voice or, or bring in a, a contrary opinion or bring some light? Or do you guys sometimes hold back and say, hey, I know how that's going to end. It's going to wind up being 150 comments back and forth and really nobody's going to change anybody's opinion. Like how do you, not only how do you guys handle that, how would you advise people again, when you have a strong belief or a take, you see something out there, it could be a friend or a friend's friend pushing something, pushing an idea, sharing something. How, how do you guys handle that? How, how do you recommend people should handle that? Well, I was going to say, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask because, uh, I'm the guy that raised the fuss that went viral on Twitter with the moon sighting thing at the beginning of the pandemic when the African sighting was rejected. That's right, Omer. I remember there was an African site was uh, African sighting was rejected, and um, yep, you you sure were one of the first people. And I think that I think actually that led to a lot of conversations for the future moon sightings on, hey, you know what? How come we accept from some countries or accept from some? communities and what really is the bar if there if there's a if there's a, a certain threshold then if it was met you know what happened here so uh i i do remember that um siraj maybe if you if or, or whoever wants to start on this how how would you how would you advise others to deal with this that so that moon sign thing is probably like more an exception rather than the rule i would say my the general rule for me is the comment section usually is not going to change anyone's mind and so if I see like misinformation or things like that, like I don't feel compelled that I have to like correct or call out or anything like that. I think for me, the litmus test really is more, you know, if I see someone post something wrong or disagreeable or whatever, the question is not for me so much like how wrong is this and can I correct it and proclaim the truth? The question is more, what's my level of relationship with that person? And so is it someone that I know well enough that I can shoot off a quick text to 
and not only get a reply, but know that they'll actually listen to what I have to say and take it into account. If that's the case, then that's part of like my amount of relationship with that person is like, hey, I got to let you know, you know, whatever it is that you said, X, Y, Z. But if it's someone random or it's people in a, you know, let's say Siraj posts something on Facebook and a debate ensues in his comment section. Now, whether Siraj wants to reply to that or not is entirely up to him because that's on his thing. But I see two people that I don't know arguing for me to interject myself into that and contribute to that discussion, no matter how valuable or true I think it is that I have to say it, in my opinion, is just a waste of time and not worth it. Okay, Siraj, same question, and I, I want and not this is not to put Siraj on the spot, but one thing I I, I personally admire and I, I see in, in Siraj's public social media profile, at least say on Facebook or other places, there can sometimes be a topic that's trending, at least in the Muslim uh, social media, and some people will either just take one, they'll dig in on one of the sides, or some people just avoid it, and I'll see Siraj sometimes will address it, you know, delicately, or he'll. He'll post something, or he'll he'll if if it's necessary, he might give a contrary view or a, or bring an alternate type of uh, voice to it. So I want to ask you the same question, Siraj. How do you handle this yourself, and also how would you advise others when 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 you notice something that they again personally you believe it might be harmful or disagreeable or or, or incorrect? How do you decide? Hey, I'm going to engage this, or I'm going to sp- I'm going to invest some of my time on social media spaces and kind of go after this topic? Well, it, it's it's something where I'm always thinking about these issues on the side, uh, like away from social media. I may be thinking about some of the specific issues that are going on, and I'm very interested, for myself at least, in the principles of the way people come to their conclusions and their ideas. Those principles are very important to me because they help me understand how I should be and when I when I see, for example, Muslims are talking about a specific issue, I'm thinking of a couple of things. First, where am I at on this issue? And second, is this benefiting? How is this benefiting the Muslims? How is this uniting us? How is this keeping us together? Or how is it breaking us apart? So like an issue like the moon sighting, for example, you know, there used to be a time, I think, when a good number of us had a very specific perspective on it. And over time, you see the issue again and again and again, and you realize that people will always fight. So what is your role to take a side and and just keep repeating the same cycle again and again? Or could your role be to help reconcile? Now, if I walk into a specific thread, I might say, yeah, you know what, my my message is going to be very limited to the people in this thread. So uh, I might just post something very general and something that tries to be conciliatory, like, you know, Whoever, you know, whatever opinion you're following, just stick with your local community, something like that, right? And you try to get people to stop fighting. You try to get people to reckon, especially before Ramadan, right? The time when the shayateen are being locked away, you want to get people to stop fighting and stop arguing. But it's like, you know, usually right before the very, right before the beginning, right before the end, everyone's like ready to, you know, roll up their sleeves and start throwing fists. So, in that type of a situation where we already have seen it again and again, and there's a simple way to just post a message that is conciliatory, I, I would focus more on that. And I know that there are going to be people who are very loud and who will like to get into it. 
But my focus is less about them and more about the people who are lurking. There's a lot of people on social media that are just lurking and watching. And occasionally they will come out and they'll maybe they'll privately DM you or they'll even do it publicly and they'll come and show up in your thread and say, you know, thank you very much. I don't normally comment, but I just wanted to say thank you, you know. So for for that type of situation, I think it's pretty straightforward for I would say the newer types of situations where there's, you know, like you mentioned, Andrew Tate, I won't get into that, but just giving an example of a, of a situation that's very controversial and people are very polarized for whatever reason they're polarized. I, again, try to look at the principles of how we're thinking about it. And I'm looking for that intellectual consistency. And I'm not claiming that I'm always intellectually consistent myself, but I'm trying and I try to bring that discussion out. So if in one situation we had one set of principles in another situation, we had another set I always want to bring us to a place where we're less about the partisanship and more about looking at those principles, the bigger principles, and applying them uniformly. And to the degree that I can bring that type of a discussion into social media, um, I find that, at least for me, it's satisfying and beneficial. And if I'm benefiting some people and pulling them away from some other more, I would say, toxic ways of thinking and acting and behaving with others, then I think it's a plus when I participate. But having said that, I also agree with Omer that there is a there there are diminishing returns and you could spend countless hours debating with someone and that could be that could be harmful. So there will be situations where I'll just look at it and say, you know what, I don't think it's worth it for me to do this. I have other things to do with my life and I'm gonna go take care of that. If I think that there might be benefit, if I think some people might listen, then I will post and I will have that discussion. And, and I do like the discussion. I mean, I will admit that I do like the discussion with others. I think it's good to to learn from others and see where they're coming from. And oftentimes what I learn from others on social media, I'll actually take offline and discuss with friends, with family and so on and see what they think as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really good uh, feedback. Guys, there, there, you know, there is another reality uh, I'd like to bring up with you guys, which is, um, you know, we believe this in as Muslims in the concept, whether whether we want to call it, uh, you know, nazar or jealousy or, or or other things. And sometimes in social media, when we're when we choose to be on there, or our children or our spouses, uh, you, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds or thousands of uh, quote unquote friends or contacts. It also, uh, you know, brings a lot of attention. Uh, and some people have different reasons, right? They're like, well, I use social media because I, I keep up with family and friends or, and not necessarily that hundreds of people or a thousand people are all family and friends, but they'll have their different reasons. And then they'll, they'll post very personal pictures. Um, it could be something, you know, that seems seasonal, like the pictures on Eid or end of Ramadan, or it could be a kid's, you know, if people celebrate, it could be a, a child's birthday party. It could be um, a vacation. And a lot of that seems pretty normal in this day and age when I say normal, or let's say common widespread. Uh, what are some advice? And, and I don't think we can get, and not, not that that's our goal at the end of the day, people have to decide for themselves, but do you guys have any advice on that? And again, I'm saying this as uh, talking as Muslims, Muslim fathers, Muslim head of household husbands, how, you know, I, I sometimes to me, I, I, I get it. I get someone might want to share a vacation or might want to share. I got a new car, got a new house. But is there oversharing or is there, you know, those natural concerns about jealousy, about nazar? Is it how do you gauge what's appropriate or not? You know, do you take the other position where you never share anything? 
Uh, I, I'd like to hear about this from both of you. How, how do you handle this? And, how, and how, not, not just how do you handle it, how would you recommend uh, people, uh, again, as believers, as Muslims, how, how should people handle stuff like that? It's hard to give a, uh, you know, one size fits all. I think every family is different. Every, everyone's situations are different. But I would come back to that theme of intentionality, which is, I would say, you know, a lot of people will post things without giving it much thought. Like, oh, I saw someone else post pictures of their kids, so I'm going to post pictures of my kids. Like, to me, that's not intentional. Uh, I think, you know, families should sit down and come to an agreement like, hey, what is our own policy of what we're willing to share or not share online? Now, if you ask me personally, I don't think that is a good idea in general. Uh, to share those kind of things. There's just too many privacy concerns, other concerns, you know, and so on. And also the other thing that I, that uh, kind of came to my came to my mind the other day was this this entire question uh, and scenario has really only existed for the last ten, maybe fifteen years at most. You know, prior to this, it's not as if people didn't have family photos, but your family photos and albums and all those things were generally for, you know, the last few decades, something that were kept privately in the home and shared with intentionality in special, you know, special settings with other people, like someone's over at your house or, you know, for a specific purpose or to show someone something. But there was never a culture until just within these past few years of not just blasting out family photos and things like that nonstop, but where you have kids who've grown up and not having had any input, their entire lives are documented online in public. So it's like, you know, I turn 18 or 19 and look back and be like, man, almost every moment of my childhood since I was like, you know, the age of five is online for people's consumption and I had no say in that. And so I say all this to say, like, I can tell you that generally I don't like it. I don't do it. You know, I used to. I stopped. But also, I think, and I think this is a really important point of perspective for people to keep in mind, is we're not going to know what the effects of posting your family photos for public consumption online are for another couple of decades, because it's going to take that long to have people that have been through that and had their lives documented. And then they grow up and go into adulthood and see like what the impacts of those things are. Are there things that follow them around? You know, there, there's already things coming out about kids having resentment toward parents because of they didn't have a say in, you know, being put on video online and things like that. So there's a lot of things that, you know, in the moment are normalized. But in the broader context of just like, you know, how we function as a society for like the last 50, 75 years, it's an aberration. And it really needs to be treated that way with that sense of caution. Yeah, for myself. Yeah, yeah. For, for myself, uh, this is with respect to family photos, right? So my take has been, for the most part, to keep most family photos, if not all, off of uh, the internet. There's a good number of reasons to do without even 
considering the religious reasons for it. Uh, you mentioned head of household. Just from a safety perspective, we already know that there are so many photos where couples or children, their their bodies, their heads have been photoshopped and then placed in disreputable websites showing them doing ridiculous things. I mean, just at that level alone, I would say don't do it because making them publicly available is very problematic. I know some people will share family photos and videos privately. I, I think there might be some room there to discuss if, if you have control and you trust the people who are looking at it and you think it's okay for those people to look at it that's one thing but there is a lot of there are a lot of public photos public videos that are going out there and i would certainly not recommend that for family um and then in addition uh, i'm going to hone in on what you said head of household uh, it's it's slightly unpopular to bring that up now but i do think that men in particular fathers in particular husbands in particular have a serious responsibility in making sure that you know inappropriate photos aren't going out and and there is a responsibility on us to make sure that islamically at least our household is in, in good working order and if for whatever reason you know some people feel that they can post photos of their family that's their business for me personally i would say that because i know we have some very strict rules around dress and around you know guidelines for how everyone should look and behave and, and appear in public. Um, I think it becomes very important for the men to regulate that with their family. So uh, to the question you brought up about, you know, what if somebody is not hijab and they're at a party and they're dressed inappropriately? First of all, if that's the case, then we should probably not be sharing that. We should share that privately with family members who it's appropriate for. And I'm sure a scholar can get into more detail on that. But for me, I'm, I would not be comfortable just as head of household and the responsibility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to take, let's say, my wife's photo and if she was, you know, covered in makeup or something like that and posting it publicly just at a spiritual level. And then also, practically speaking, of course, with the Internet the way it is. I think that that's, those are two major considerations specifically for fathers, specifically for Muslim fathers and, and husbands. You, Sir, Siraj, Siraj, if I can, so I, I thought we were headed to the, the our last question because I, I know we're a, a little over an hour, but I, you know we could probably go a little longer. But I wanted to ask you one thing based on on something you said, um, and I think all uh, us three here are you know we're in our forties, and uh, you know we've had when we were probably in high school, internet and social media wasn't as as much of a issue, but obviously our children are going to be growing up in a different environment. How do you really quickly? I wanted to ask you both because you're both from the tech world or, or in the techie world. Now you have stuff coming out like uh, Chatbot GB, GPT, and I, I recently was at a event where I was sitting with a bunch of current college guys, so like that 19 to 25 sort of age group, and everybody was just fascinated with um, kind of some of the stuff that's going to be able to happen. And we're talking about positives, you know, sending code or uh, you know whether it's research about anything, and and obviously. Uh, Chatbot GPT can also be a little bit addictive, but another point, Siraj, that you mentioned that you know getting uh, pictures, stealing pictures of people's children or spouses, and or and winding up on disreputable websites or or in problematic type of situations. How 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 would you deal with some of these new emerging technologies? Because honestly, the little I've read, 
about this new, um, you know, the chat GPT. It, it looks amazing. I mean, just as a as a business user, I mean, forget even for DAO work or for um, for that. I'm, I'm, you know, I've tested it a little bit. I've I've followed uh, a couple of um, personalities online who have have kind of played with it, and it's it's like Sopanala. You're like uh, some of the stuff that's able to be done. And I think this. Uh, my fear is that this might also feed into more addiction about always being online. But how do you guys deal with something like this that again seems fascinating but then at the same time i could see people spending 20 30 hours a week on the on this new chatbot uh, gpt so i wanted to get you guys opinion on that or or anything else about new technologies that are coming out well i operate in the software quality space and so i was very naturally fascinated by chat gpt and i spent and and maybe to your point but hopefully this is not considered unproductive time i did spend a good amount of time testing it and playing around with it and seeing you know, where it works, what, what its flaws are, what its limits are to the best that I could. And I was very interested in the way it processed questions about Islam, Muslims, um, our, our books, our fiqh books, and, and, you know, like, what does it know about the Quran? So I was like very interested by that. And I spent quite a bit of time. I think of ChatGPT as the next level for Google. It's not going to be something that you know, people are, at least right now, for, for the moment, I don't see it as something where, you know, a person is putting themselves out there, a person is trying to promote themselves, and it's going to addict them in, in that type of a way. I don't see it as like one of those, uh, at the moment at least, and, and of course researchers will have to speak more on this, but I don't see it as like one of those dopamine addiction uh, machines. I do, however, th- I am thinking, however, about the type of AI that they're using and, and how that could be applied towards like, you know, things like Facebook and TikTok and whatever. But in terms of um, chat GPT itself and just interacting and asking it questions and getting answers back and getting sophisticated answers back, I think it's I think it's interesting and I think it's a better use of people's time to be searching for information and learning if that's what it provides them um, rather than what's going on right now on social media and some of the more problematic behaviors there. But yeah, it's, it's a very fascinating technology for sure. And uh, I, from what I understand, there's going to be a GPT-4 now, which is supposed to dwarf the specs of GPT-3, which will be very interesting. Well, and, uh, you know, and as I tee this up for Omer, um, Siraj, and I'm, I'm sure you and Omer followed this, the Google CEO actually came out and said that Google was going to start investing heavily because they see it as a, as a legitimate threat where, um, not that they're behind, but that uh, that this is just such a fascinating kind of new technology that they were, they were going to start to enhance their own, I guess, version of it. But Omar, how do you see it? The the same, whether you want to talk about the chatbot or, or something else, but again, these new emerging technologies seem like they're going to be really uh, potentially addictive as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everything is disruptive in, in a sense, right? Whether it was, you know, whether it was the printing press way back when or the television or smartphones or social media, like they're all, you know, they're going to have a massive societal impact. I don't know that it's necessarily possible to like forecast out what exactly that impact is going to be. Um, but I think for me, it just comes back to a couple of like principal things where, you know, I think the future is probably some middle ground of where people are forecasting. Like, I don't think that this is you know, a dystopian, like, rise of the machines are going to take over the world kind of thing. Like, I think that's 
quite excessive and extremist. Um, but it's definitely going to disrupt and change the way that we do a lot of things. And I think in terms of future focus, it comes back to, you know, principles, values, those kind of things. And what, and what I mean when I say that is, you know, like Islamically, we have this, uh, you know, there's a commandment in the Quran, like verify information uh, when it comes to you. Right. And so, you know, that's a very basic principle that we have that we apply to social media, even now, you know, prior to chat GPT of even before this, there were like deep fakes. There were, you know, there's photoshops, there's things like that. And so you have to build up a skill of like information literacy and being able to determine like what's what. And so when I see something like this, I'm not like scared. It's like, oh, my God, what's going to happen because of it? But to me, it just means that we have to up our own skills and abilities on things like being able to spot misinformation, being able to interpret and go through and see, like, is this accurate or not accurate, not just taking everything that it spits out at face value. So I think about it more in terms of of that way, uh, kind of like what the impact is going to be and how we react to it. Guys, uh, one question as, as we are going to be wrapping up. Um... If someone out there listening, a brother, sister, a parent, uh, a spouse, they, they, they are looking to maybe not eliminate their social media usage or, of course, internet usage, but they, they, they want to control it. They want to reduce it. They find that they're spending you know, excessive amounts of time, whether it's on the Instagrams or Twitters or WhatsApp, I, I, as Omar said earlier, with some of the fathers or um, Facebook if you guys could give at least one advice, just one tangible, actionable advice on how somebody could limit or uh, reduce the usage and it's it's out of control, what what's something you would say to the to a person? I would say don't take drastic measures because they're probably not going to stick, uh, but take meaningful steps that start to mitigate the usage and. You know, an example would be I wouldn't like suddenly like listen to this podcast and deactivate all your social media accounts because 99% chance that within, you know, six weeks, you're going to reactivate all of them and probably use them even more. So I would say take meaningful steps like turning off the notifications on your phone or deleting the social media apps on your phone, but still letting yourself use them, you know, on your laptop or unfollowing the amount of people that you follow and cut down on the quantity of messaging that hits your feed, you know, things like that, that are going to be a little bit more sustainable and start moving you in the direction of weaning off of it. You, you know, Omar, before head, heading to Siraj on the same question, uh, me and my wife both read your book, Fick of Social Media. And one of the things I did was uh, rather than going into anything extreme, um, I, the first thing I did was look at the quote unquote friends lists and I realized that a lot of people were not friends. They could have been someone I ran into once at a conference or, uh, you know, and, and so just limiting some of that and then following less people and uh, maybe having a rule of logging in, tw- say, twice a day, but 10 minutes or something, it really, really helped. So I, I, I really like what you said about something that's sustainable and balanced. Um, Siraj, what about you? At, at least one advice, a, a actionable, uh, something tangible that, that you could give people. Yeah, I would say that, first of all, Omar's advice was really good uh, about turning off notifications and and not trying to do everything all at once. 
because he's right, you'll definitely crash and burn. The one piece of advice I would just add on top of it is to have meaningful goals in your life, meaningful pursuits, whatever it may be, something that's good and healthy for you. For me, it'll be things like, you know, fitness, um, being part of my children's basketball team, uh, you know, last, uh, say like a few uh, weeks ago, my son was on, uh, with, like he was learning basketball and he was part of a camp. And then they had like, uh, like they had, uh, like tournaments and they needed coaches. And so I said, sure, I'll be happy to coach. And I ended up coaching my son's basketball. And then now I sit down with him and I do physical fitness with him in the evenings, you know, just having different activities whether you're a family man or you're a person by yourself and responsible only for yourself, the more meaningful, important things that are going on in your life that take up your schedule and your time, the less you're going to have for social media. And for me, I say this as somebody who is probably has been addicted for probably over 15, 20 years for, as I said earlier, going back all the way to AOL days. And what I found is that, you know, over time, once you've gotten addicted to these things, they can grab you and pull you right back in, especially if you participate actively. And the best way to disengage more often and not let it have control is to have things that are more important in your life that take up your time and keep you busy. Awesome, guys. Really, really good uh, tips. And I want to say that, uh, honestly, I've as, as a host of the podcast today, I've really, or, or co-host with Siraj, I've really benefited and enjoyed um uh, this this segment um, learned a lot, and 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 hopefully the, the listeners did as well. Uh, Omar, I wanted to say that there's so much more we can discuss on on these topics of of social media, of internet usage, of of all that comes with that uh, for Muslims uh, and, and 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 non-Muslims. Hey, uh, yeah, sorry, can, I, can I stop you for a second? This is this is really funny. So I pulled up uh, Chat GPT uh, just now while Siraj was talking, and I put in there, how do I stop using social media? And it spit out six bullet points. It said, set specific goals for why you want to stop, delete the apps from your phones, find activities to fill your time, such as exercise, reading, or spending time with friends and family, limit access by using website blockers or setting time limits on your device, seek support from friends and family, and remember your reasons for wanting to stop using it. Man. It's listening to us, or we're listening to it. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome, guys. I w- Omar, I would like to say that there's there's much more we can cover on this. We'd like to, inshallah, have you back on 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 the show, inshallah, if you'd be willing to come on. Yeah, absolutely, awesome. And um, I, for the listeners, also, I want to say this is um, myself and Siraj have uh, you know several guests like Omar that'll come on, bring their expertise bring ideas and topics that are, are relevant to the Muslim community and, again, any of our non-Muslim listeners and and helpful. So um, I'll be looking for those in the coming weeks and months. And I wanted to say both of you guys uh, for giving us your time tonight and for your families for giving their time. Jazakallah uh, khair and assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam Hey, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram on our handle Muslim Matters and check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.